Good morning. Um, I was just talking to the, the folks in the front row here, and uh, my dad is in Omaha today. Uh, his mother passed away last night. And so um, I'm just filling in for him today while he's up taking care of, of grandpa. And um, so uh, keep them in your prayers. Um, it, was, uh, it was expected. It wasn't sudden by any means, but uh, still hard for, for dad um, especially, and for grandpa. So keep them in your prayers. Let's pray real quick before we get started. Lord Jesus, thank you for letting us get in your word this morning. Father, we're always just, we're always uh, amazed at, at the things that we learn from your word, God. It doesn't matter whether it's the Old Testament or the New Testament, the prophets or the books of poetry, whatever they are, God, um, we, there's always something you've put in there for us and everything that pertains to our life, any question that we have, anything that we need, is laid out for us. And so, Lord, we just, we're here for a piece of that this morning, a piece of what you want for us and what you um, desire us to know. And so we open our hearts to that. And we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so Second uh, Kings chapter 6 and 7. We're just going to move on um, through, through where Dad had left off. And the first section here um, is the axe head, the floating axe head. And we're going to spend most of our time after that. We're going to read through it really quick, and I'll, I'll make maybe one or two comments, but uh, not a whole lot to say. I'm sure there is for maybe a deeper thinker than myself, but not a whole lot in the axe head story other than maybe the obvious. Um, but I think there's more we can dig into in the rest of chapter six. And then um, chapter seven is an example of chapter six. So the things that we talk about and, and discuss in chapter six are going to be shown um, then in chapter 7. So let's read. And the sons of the prophets said to Elijah, See now the place where we dwell with you is too small for us. Please let us go to the Jordan and let every man take a beam from there and let us make there a place where we may dwell. So he answered, Go. Then one said, Please consent to go with your servants. And he answered, I will go. So he went with them. And when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees but as one was cutting down a tree, the iron axe head fell into the water, and he cried out and said, Alas, master, for it was borrowed. So the man of God said, Where did it fall? And he showed him the place. So he cut off a stick and threw it in there, and he made the iron float. Therefore he said, Pick it up for yourself. So he reached out his hand and took it. So here again, we, we run into this school of prophets that... Um, and it actually says here the sons of the prophets, but we believe they're kind of the same thing. In some places, they're referred to as the school or like some kind of academy. Here, it's the sons of the prophets. But here, this is something new as we've gone through Kings. It, it appears as if Elijah is somehow their teacher or their leader. Um, and it sounds like they're learning under him. And I think that's interesting because like as dad has pointed out over the past few weeks, they seem to be um, prophets who maybe desire to have the position of a prophet, but haven't been maybe anointed in that. Maybe they have a prophecy every once in a while, but it seems that um, it's more like a place where people go to seek after a calling rather than, like in Elisha's case, just simply being called without, without seeking it. And, you know, the only really thing I, I want to point out in this um, is just the obvious thing, that God cares about tiny things just like big things. And that seems cliche to say, but I think that's really emphasized here is that this man's axe head didn't matter, uh, except for the fact that it was borrowed. And that could have been a big deal for that specific man. You know, maybe he would have lost something if he wouldn't have come back with the axe head. But Elijah cared enough about it to actually uh, use a miracle to restore it for him. And, and there's not many things in my life, especially not like this, where I would ask God to do a miracle for me. You know, I wouldn't say, 
you know, Lord, I, I lost this, my wallet, you know, would you um, perform a miracle and have it just float up on top of the building so I can see it plain as day? You know, it, it's something that is, is kind of on me and yet, yeah, well, shouldn't have done that. But I think it's important to note that God cares about those little things and maybe I take it too lightly what he is willing to do for me. So anyway, that's that. Let's move on. Now, here's where we get into what I'm a little more excited about. Now, the king of Syria was making war against Israel, and he consulted with his servants, saying, my camp will be in such and such a place. And the man of God, this is Elisha, sent to the king of Israel, saying, beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are coming down there. Then the king of Israel sent someone to the place of which the man of God had told him, thus he warned him, and he was watchful there, not just once or twice. Therefore, the heart of the king of Syria was greatly troubled by this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, will you not show me which of us is for the king of Israel? So he thinks there's some kind of mutiny going on. And one of the servants said, none, my Lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. So he said, go and see where he is that I may send and get him. So it was told him saying, surely he is in Dothan. Therefore, he sent horses and chariots and a great army there. And they came by night and surrounded the city. And when the servant of the man of God, this could be Gehazi, the same guy that we read about from last week, but it doesn't say his name. He might've gotten a new servant after the whole leprosy thing, but could, it could be Gehazi. Um, he saw the army surrounded the city with horses and chariots. And the servant said to him, alas, my master, what shall we do? So real quick, before we move on, I want to talk about who this king is. And it's this, it's the same king that Elisha has been dealing with um, this whole time um, in second Kings three uh, verse one. Now Jehoram, the son of Ahab became king over Israel. So this is Jehoram, the king. And it goes on to say there in first Kings three, that uh, Jehoram did evil in the sight of the Lord, but not like his father's. So we're dealing with kind of a, a moderate king here, a mediocre king. He has put away Baal, but he hasn't torn down all the high places kind of thing. And um, we see that he has a decent relationship with Elijah. He has a moment here in chapter seven where he gets frustrated with Elijah and is going to try and kill Elijah. But um, we see by Elisha's response to that action, um, he calls the king the son of a murderer. And um, I think that's interesting because he doesn't call him a murderer. He calls his father Ahab, who obviously was a murderer, right? He killed uh, Nabal for his field. So I think that Elisha has a decent relationship with the king. Obviously, he's warning the king of enemy attacks and things like that. So um, a moderate king. Anyway, so what's happening here is, is the king of Assyria is trying to plant some kind of ambush for the king of Israel. Elisha lets the king of Israel know about this little trick that Syria's got up its sleeve, and then the king of Israel can defend against it. The king of Syria is frustrated because it seems like his every move is already known and he can't do anything without Israel knowing about it. They say, well, that's Elisha. Elisha is the one who is telling the king because he knows everything you say. And so the, the point that I want to bring out of this and kind of through the rest of chapter seven here is that, and this is just, this is just what hit me, is that you don't have to be in some kind of place of leadership for Satan to want to attack you. And, and hear me out on this. So the king of Syria and the king of Israel are at war. Elisha is not at war with the king of Syria, but he serves the king of Israel. So he is at war with the king of Syria. Here we see the entire Syrian army surrounding Elisha 
And he, he hasn't picked a fight with Syria. All he's done is serve his king. He hasn't gone out and beat on the gates of Syria. He's not trying to bring people from Syria over to Israel. He's simply living in his country, serving his king, and it garners then attacks from the enemy. And I think that's the same way as Christians. And sometimes for me personally, you know, I'll uh, have something come at me that, that's attack from the enemy or seems like spiritual warfare. And my first thought is, well, what have I done for God lately that would make Satan want to attack me? You know, like I, I haven't gone street witnessing lately. You know, I, I haven't like preached a message or I haven't, I mean, last time I led worship was Saturday. And, and you know, it's like, so I think about what have I done for God because that's how Satan attacks me. But it's so wrong because Satan knows that I am in the service of the king. Satan knows that we are about the Lord's business. And so he's after us all the same, no matter what, you know, no matter what we're going to do. And so I think it's interesting to keep my antenna up. Um, no matter what I'm doing, uh, things that may just seem like, you know, happenstance or, or unfortunate circumstances, the enemy is always, always at work. And I also think about how Satan began his war with God. Uh, when he was in heaven and he wanted to make himself like God, it doesn't talk about him making a move up there. It just talks about the position of his heart. Satan wanted to be like God. Satan was trying to, um, trying to you know, supersede the authority of God, but he didn't do it in heaven. He was cast out before that happened. And then on the earth, what did he do? He went for Eve. He went for God's creation. He went for those who were in the service of the king. He knows he can't pick a fight with God, but one of us, a much more easy um, and, and easier to fool. So I think that's kind of the first thing, and we'll see that throughout here, that um, Satan is prowling. He is real, and he would want to make an example out of every one of us, like he tried with Job. That was his whole purpose with Job. It was not necessarily to cause Job to fall. That wasn't his purpose. He could care less about Job. He could care less about you or I. All he cares about is a war with God, and that is waged through individual battles with you and I. And when we lose the battle, then that's one step that he's taken against the Lord. So with Job, what did he say? He said, well, God said, have you considered Job? Satan's entire purpose was to prove a point to God. It was not at all to get Job, you know. Of course, he would have loved for Job to curse God and die, but it was all about what kind of example can I make out of this man of God who is held in reverence by all who know him? How can I make him curse God? And then how can I shine that light on the rest of Christianity back then, of course, not Christianity, but so that's Satan's aim is to, is to be against us as an indirect way of being against God. Verse 16, so he answered. So this is Elisha talking back to his servants. Servants worry, doesn't know what to do. Do not fear for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And that's that is a circleable verse if I've ever read one. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So when the Syrians came down to him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, strike this people, I pray, with blindness. And he struck them with blindness according to the word of Elisha. And that is, that's such a special thing to read in the Old Testament. Before the Holy Spirit being inside of us, God was with his people back then. God was with Moses, spoke to Moses face to face. God doesn't need to do that today because we have the Holy Spirit. He speaks heart to heart now. 
not face to face. But back then, God was always with them in the person, physically surrounding them. And I'm sure that he, he still is in some ways. There's angels and, and things that are protecting us. But more than anything, the battles of today are waged in the heart and for our hearts and through the Holy Spirit. Let's read uh, one verse here. John, 1 John 4, 4. And this is such a well-known verse, but it's so beautiful. It's like the New Testament way of saying what Elisha just said. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. 1 John 4, 4. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And again, I think that's cool showing the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. God was with them. He is in us. And how much more powerful that is to have the power and the army of the Lord in in the person of the Holy Spirit inside of us. Amazing. Now, about this this servant, whoever it is, he asks, he, he has doubts, he has fears, and he asks for a physical sign for something that'll help him overcome his doubts. It reminds me of Thomas, and I want to go over and read the story of Thomas really quick here. Um, it's in 1 John 20, 27 through 29. Um, but Jesus says something interesting to Thomas, and, and we've read this, but it's wonderful when God shows us what he's doing, but it's so much, so much better when we realize what he's doing without the doubts, without the inconsistency of faith. You know what I mean? There's been so many times in my life where I've thought, God, I want to have faith in you. Would you just show me again that everything's going to be okay? And then I'll believe you and it'll be great. And most of the time he does because he loves me and and he's a kind and a gracious God. But every time he shows me, I'm humbled. Why am I humbled? Because there was no reason to doubt in the first place. And I I say, okay, Lord, thank you so much. Next time, I'm not even going to pray for a sign. I'm not even going to ask because I'm just, that's how steadfast I'm going to be. I'm not even going to guess anymore. And and that may or may not happen, but I, I make those commitments in my heart, you know, because that's my desire. My desire is not to not to always ask God for his reaffirming of his promises over and over. We sang the song, his promises are yes and amen. They are for sure. Okay, John 20, 27 through 29. Then he said to Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it in my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. That's God's heart for him, for Thomas. That was God's heart for Elisha's servant. And that's God's heart for us. Do not be unbelieving. And if there's anything that God can do to help us not be unbelieving, he does it. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. And he said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. I think that's our goal as Christians. That's what we strive for. That's what we work towards is to be believing Christians. Verse 18. So when the Syrians came down to him, wait, we've already read that verse 19. They've all been struck with blindness at this point. Now, Elisha said to them, this is not the way, nor is this the city. Follow me and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. But he led them to Samaria. And this is going to kind of open the next thing that just blows my mind is how high God's ways are above our own. I mean, what, what army, when you think about it, who is in enemy territory, you're a raiding band. You know, I'm trying to think of what it would be like for us without being too like politically incorrect, but like if we were in Baghdad or something, you know, or some place where people want to kill Christians and, uh, and we're blinded and some guys like you're going the wrong way. I'll take you where you need to go. Are you kidding me? But anyway, 
God is working and this is obviously an act of God and things just happen. When God uh, moves, things just happen. So it was when they came to Samaria that Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. And the Lord opened their eyes and they saw and they and they were indeed in, or they were inside Samaria. So a jaw-dropping moment for these poor guys. Fighting against God, not much they can do about it. Now, when the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, my father, shall I kill them? Shall I kill them? He is pumped. He just brought the entire army to him on a dinner plate. But he says, you shall not kill them. Would you kill those whom you have taken captive with your sword and your bow? Set food and water before them, that they may eat and drink and go to their master. Then he prepared a great feast for them. And after they ate and drank, he sent them away and they went to their master. So the bands of Syrian raiders came no more into the land of Israel. I think that's amazing, um, obviously, on, on a number of ways. The magnitude of God's victories in our life and, and what he can do. And my idea of a victory is that I defeat my enemy and then I don't deal with them anymore. But God's victories are so much better. But at the same time, there's like a little twist to it. God gives them such a complete victory that without shedding one drop of blood, they successfully capture and deter the entire Syrian army and then are asked to show mercy to them and send them away. That's God's kind of victory. God's kind of victory is I will deliver them to you and then you show mercy back to them because I've shown mercy to you and then they won't attack you anymore. And that is higher than my thoughts. That's higher than my ways. Verse 24. And it happened after this that Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, gathered all his army and went up and besieged Samaria. So he's upset at what just happened. He's going to go siege uh, the entire city, region. Samaria is kind of a region. And there was a great famine in Samaria. And indeed, they besieged it until donkeys, until a donkey's head was sold for eight shekels of silver and one-fourth of a cob of dove droppings for five shekels of silver. So this is very, very severe. Then as the king of Israel was passing by on a wall, a woman cried to him saying, help me, O Lord, or help me, my Lord, O king. And he said, if the Lord God, capital L-O-R-D, does not help you, where can I find help for you? From the threshing floor or from the wine press? Then the king said to her, what is troubling you? And she answered, this woman said to me, give me your son that we may eat him today and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him. And I said to her on the next day, okay, now give me your son that we may eat him, but she has hidden her son. So she has a judgment call for the king to make, not one that the king wanted to make, maybe not one that he was even aware was going on in Samaria. He didn't realize these things were happening. I think this shows, though, that he has some um, morality, that he has some relationship with the Lord, even if it's not as tight as it should be because of what happens next. Now, it happened when the king heard the words of the woman that he tore his clothes and as he passed by on the wall, the people looked and there underneath he had sackcloth, which is a sign of repentance and mourning towards God. And he said, God do so to me and more also if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat remains on him today. So he's blaming this on Elisha because of what Elisha did to the Syrians. And, and now this has made the king of Syria mad. So he's blaming Elisha for what's happening. In, in, incorrect, but He's upset and some disgusting things are happening in his country. But Elisha was sitting in his house and the elders were sitting with him and the king sent a man ahead of him. But before the messenger came to him, he said to the elders, Elisha says, do you see how this son of a murderer has sent someone to take away my head? 
Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold him fast at the door is not the sound of his master's feet behind him. So he said, just barricade the door and keep him there until the king comes because he's the one I need to talk to. And while he was still talking with him, there was the messenger coming down to him. Then the king said, surely this calamity is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? And that is not true. It's not from the Lord. And he should wait for the Lord. And I think that it's hard to determine what things are from the Lord. Um, because, and this is just honest, the Bible says that things are going to grow worse in the end times. So are those things from the Lord or not? I don't know. Uh, I think it would depend on which thing. You know, we look at corona and we look at, uh, we look at death and, and suicide and all the terrible things that are going on in our world and have been. Uh, evil is nothing new. And you wonder, is, are these things, are the, is the Lord allowing these things? Or is this just the signs of the times? I don't know how that works. I don't know how God uh, you know, dictates what happens and what doesn't. But being a perfect God and being all loving and all merciful, he warns us ahead of time of what will happen. And so I guess in my own heart, I don't cast any judgment on the king because sometimes when I see bad things happen, I'd be like, oh yeah, the Lord told me that's going to happen. So therefore, this might be from the Lord or it might be causing us to repent. That doesn't mean that's, that's the case though. Some things the Lord just allows and he has, no, uh, he has no intent purpose of them, but he uses all things for good, of course. All right, chapter seven. We're gonna read through this really quick. This is an example, just a quick example of what we talked about, that God's ways are higher than our own. I think that the way God works out the salvation is just like what we talked about. It's total, it's complete, it's absolute, and not a drop of blood has to be shed. Um, so many times in the Old Testament, God is viewed as a violent God. A lot of blood is shed at the hands of, of God and at his orders, not here. And this shows us that he doesn't do those things because it's who he is. He does them because they're appropriate. Whatever is appropriate for the specific time is what God does. And here he chooses that nobody dies. I think that's really, really interesting. Then Elisha said, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, tomorrow about this time, a sea of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel and two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. So basically saying it's all going to end tomorrow at this time, it's all going to be over. So an officer on whose hand the king leaned answered the man of God and said, look, if the Lord would make the windows of heaven or the windows in heaven open, how could this thing be? So he's like, even if God rained food out of the sky, I don't see how that's possible. And he said, in fact, you shall see it with your eyes, but you shall not eat of it. And oh, that is the, that is the punishment for doubt. Uh, this, this man doesn't get leprosy. He doesn't keel over and die, but that is the punishment for doubt. You will see it, but you won't be able to partake of it. You believe, and then you get to partake. If you don't, you don't believe me, it's still going to happen, but there's not going to be that joy as if you had believed me. And I, I feel that the Lord so many times for me has begged me, just believe so that when I do what I said, I'm going to do, which I am you'll actually be able to rejoice because you'll have come through it in faith and in belief. But if you doubt now, it's, gonna, it's still going to happen. Your doubt doesn't change anything. It's still going to happen, but you won't, you won't be able to have that joy. You won't be able to enjoy it as much. So this makes me think of Zacharias. Remember Zacharias, God said, you're going to have a son. And Zacharias says, how can this be? And God says, well, it's going to be, but you're going to be mute. 
And, and I think about that, all the joy that would have been shared through family members and just from him to his wife, just even coming home and trying to tell her that, not being able to share with her his heart and his excitement for becoming a father, not being able to talk about what they would do and, and how things would be as a new family of three. He was robbed of all of that joy because of his unbelief. He wasn't robbed of the child. God's word was true. It was yes and amen, but he was robbed of that joy. So I think that's the most important thing about doubt. Um, is that it, it's more for our sakes. God wants us to be believing. Don't be unbelieving, but be believing. Now, there were four leprous men, verse three, at the entrance of the gate. And they said to one another, why are we sitting here until we die? If we say we will enter the city, the famine is in the city and we shall die there. And if we sit here, we die also. Now, therefore, come, let us surrender to the army of the Syrians. If they keep us alive, we shall live. And if they kill us, we are only going to die, which basically they're saying we were going to die anyway. And they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. And when they had come to the outskirts of the Syrian camp, to their surprise, no one was there. For the Lord had caused the army of the Syrians to hear the noise of chariots and the noise of horses, the noise of a great army. So they said to one another, look, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to attack us. Therefore, they arose and fled at twilight and left the camp intact, their tents, their horses, and their donkeys, and they fled for their lives. That is incredible. That would not have even been on my radar as a person of Israel. I would have thought about all the ways God could have saved me. You know, maybe he sends hail on them. Maybe um, he gives one of our guys like super strength, like Goliath, maybe through some trickery or ambush, we can fight them. Never would I have thought that God would have just had them hear something that wasn't even there. I forget God has that kind of power. Like, oh, I didn't realize that was an option. We can just cause our enemies to hear things and deter them. We can cause their suspicions and their own fears of the Hittites and the Egyptians God knew they had those fears and used those against them. It's just amazing to me. And I, I think about how many things in my life I, I try and put in a box. Here's how it could work and here's how it could work. And um, it's always amazing to me. People ask sometimes uh, in, how do I want to say this? I guess I should say atheists have asked before, if God is going to give everybody a chance of salvation, what about the people who have never heard the gospel? Right? It's a valid question and, and a hard one to answer. But this goes along the same lines here, so stay with me. <clears throat> that was a rough segue into that. But they ask this question, and then you read stories about Jesus himself just showing up in remote villages, preaching himself to the villagers there. And it's like, I didn't, I didn't realize I didn't realize that that was still an option. You can still come to earth anytime you want to, preach yourself to whoever you want to. You're going to make sure that your word is yes and amen. God said, everyone will have a chance to hear. Now, I'm going to tell as many people as I can, but it's not on me to make sure everybody hears. It's on God. He's going to make his own word yes and amen. That's so cool. All right, <clears throat> verse 10. No, eight. And when these lepers came to the outskirts of the camp, they went into one tent and ate and drank and carried from it silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. Then they came back and entered another tent and carried some from there also and went and hid it. Then they said to one another, we are not doing right. 
This day is a day of good news, and we remain silent. If we wait until morning light, some punishment will come upon us. Now, therefore, come, let us go and tell the king's household. So they went and called to the gatekeepers of the city and told them, saying, We went to the Syrian camp, and surprisingly, no one was there, not a human sound, only horses and donkeys tied, and the tents were intact. And the gatekeepers called out, and they told it to the king's household inside. So the king arose in the night and said to his servants, Let me now tell you what the Syrians have done to us. So the the king suspects an ambush. They know that we are hungry, therefore they have gone out of the camp to hide themselves in the field, saying, When we come out of the city, we shall catch them alive and get into the city. And one of his servants said, Please, let several men take five of the remaining horses which are left in the city. Look, They may either become like the multitude of Israel that are left in it, or indeed, I say, they may become like the multitude of Israel left from those who are consumed. So let us send them and see. The servant says, send the last of the horses, because they're either going to die in here, someone's going to eat them, or they're going to go out there and be killed by the Assyrians. But hey, at least we'll know. Therefore, they took two chariots with the horses, and the king sent out, sent them in the direction of the Syrian army, saying, go and see. And they went after them to the Jordan, and indeed all the road was full of garments and weapons, which the Syrians had thrown away in their haste. So the messengers returned and told the king, then the people went out and plundered the tents of the Syrians. So a seah of fine flour was sold for a shekel, and two seahs of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. Now the king had appointed the officer on whose hand he leaned, back to the guy who Elisha said would not get to partake of the spoil. He had appointed him uh, to have charge of the gate, but the people trampled him in the gate and he died. Just as the man of God had said, who spoke when the king came down to him. So it happened just as the man of God had spoken to the king, saying, two seahs of barley for a shekel and a seah of fine flour for a shekel shall be sold tomorrow about this time in the gate of Samaria. Then that officer had answered the man of God saying, now look for if the Lord would make windows in heaven, could such a thing be? And he said, in fact, you shall see it with your eyes, but you shall not eat of it. And so it happened to him for the people trampled him in the gate and he died. So to wrap up, God's promises are yes and amen. God's words are true. They're always sure. Nothing can thwart them, not even us, not even our own doubt. We may be robbed of the joy. We may miss out on a piece of what God wanted to do for us, but his will will still be accomplished. So the two things that we kind of talked about, two big things, that Satan, the Bible says, is a roaring lion, and he's seeking who he can devour. And that doesn't mean people who are out conquering the world for the Lord. That means anybody who is in the service of the king, anybody who he can make an example of. The weak who are weak enough in the Lord to where he can cause them to stumble and cause all the unbelievers around them to see that, that's a victory for him. When David sinned with Bathsheba, Nathan told him that your sin is forgiven, but David still had to have a punishment because he had given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. So the punishment of David's son dying wasn't even about David. It was about all the people that David had caused to sin. And that's really Satan's aim. No matter how insignificant I may seem what I do every day, Um, Satan wants to make the example out of me the same as everybody else. So be watchful. The Bible says that we're not ignorant of his schemes. We understand him. We know his angle. He's not hard to figure out, but it is hard to be watchful. And then the second thing is that God is bigger than we think. Um, 
And that is proven over and over and over again. His ways are past finding out. Two scriptures on that, and then we'll close. Isaiah 55, 8. Says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Second scripture, Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Or who has given to him and it shall not be repaid? For of him and through him and to him, are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word and for the consistency um, that it gives us. Lord, the teaching that it gives us every time we open it. Father, we pray that you would help us to put these things to use. God, would you help us to live our lives free of doubt as much as we can, God. We know that you love us and we know that you're gracious with us, but God, as much as as much faith as we can muster, as much as you've built up in us, we pray that we would put it to use, that it would be exercised through our works, Lord, through our obedience and through our belief. God, we thank you for your heart for us. Pray these things in your name. Amen. All right, someone will be up here to pray for you if you need prayer. Otherwise, have a great week. We'll see you next time. And we'll keep you updated on my dad uh, and grandma. We'll let you know in the email how things go. So thank you.